Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Challenging messages come. My filter says, I don't want to be one who brings guilt. I don't want to be one who brings condemnation. I don't, I don't want to be one who brings shame. All of those things, some of those are lies. Some of those things are like guilt when it's brought by the Holy Spirit is a good deal. I don't want to be the one bringing it, but if you feel that in the course of this morning and if you feel icky toward me, come and let me know that. If there's something that I'm saying that is, you feel like that's unhealthy, challenge me in it. If you search yourself and you feel like, actually, I feel like God is poking me, then don't push it off. Then receive it. A, a good challenge from the Holy Spirit is healthy for us. Um, and so we're in this standalone series and as I prepared for last week and for this week, I felt like God was kind of pushing me toward this challenge to say we're living in a volatile time in our country um, when it comes to words. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about words this morning. We're going to talk about the power of words. A number of years ago now, um, just like Justin and the group set off on this week-long, uh, short week-long summer adventure trip, I was preparing to lead a group out to Colorado, and it almost didn't happen. Um, in the weeks leading up to when we were going, there was a, a forest fire that started, and it started to rip through, and it's acres and acres, and then uh, hundreds, and then thousands, and then 100,000 acres of forest that are just being devastated um, by human cause, either some foolish accident, or I don't know if they found out that it was malicious intent. But somebody caused a fire that got out of control, and it was encroaching on homes, and people had to evacuate, and it was right in the area that we were going to go. Um, and the containment was so small, like they couldn't get around it. We thought we were going to have to cancel the trip, and so we started looking for different options. And by the time the trip got up to it, uh, they had contained it. We were able to go. We had to pick a different rappel site because that whole area had just burned down to the ground. Poor us, right? Um, but it was, it was like a sobering trip driving past the burn areas and to, to see forests that we had been in before that had been vibrant, that had been lush, that had been just growing beautiful Colorado pine forests. Now we're black and char and stumps. And it was just, there's a, uh, it felt like you were driving past death. James says, in James 3.6, the tongue is a fire. He says, it's a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Now, words matter, right? Words matter matter. The words that we use, the words that we choose, the words sometimes that we don't even think about that we're using, and even beyond the specific words, the tone of our words, the timing of our words, the intent behind the word, it all matters. Words are powerful, and they can build up or they can burn down, and a lot of damage has been called, caused by it. We live in a time when words are ablaze, White supremacists are spewing evil. I heard a reporter recently call our president 
a pile of human refuse. I think, like whatever you think, whatever your opinion of the job he's doing, that should never come out past the filter. But it's not just out there, right? Like it's in here too. Words affect the church. Sins of the tongue affect the church and they affect our homes and our families. Husbands and wives may talk to each other in ways that we would never speak to somebody else. Parents speak to their kids in ways where if we heard another adult speak to our kid that way, we would go off. And yet there are times when we uh, were guilty of speaking that way. Kids speak to their parents or to one another or to anybody in ways that should just never get past the filter. And I think maybe that's the problem, is that we've, we've lost our filter. We're living in a day when it's so easy to just spew things or type things out and hit go that it's just right there, and we've lost our filter. Today I want to talk about our words when they become sin. Well, what that looks like, let's identify the sin of the tongue. Let's take a step back and say, why is that even here? What's going on that this comes out? And then I want to take a step to say, let's not just sit in our pile, right? Let's look forward. What can we do about it? How can we grow out of this? How can we turn our attention to God and say, we need to grow? And we might want to claim in all of the problems that are going on in our world or in our church or in our family or whatever, that words aren't the biggest deal. But Jesus calls it significant. In Matthew 12, 36, Jesus says, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. He uses the word careless. He doesn't even say evil, right? Every careless word, everything that comes out of your mouth that you didn't take care in speaking. Jesus says, we will be held accountable for that. And I think we have, in grace, in grace, uh, we will be able to hear hard things. They won't be words of condemnation, but they will be judgment. There will be accountability. And we will see things for what they are. This morning, I want to dig into Ephesians 4. Because I think Ephesians 4 is a... It's just a marvelous passage at the end of it where Paul sums up um, this, talking about, uh, this talking about our tongue. And he's come out of a section where he's just said uh, the Christian life is one of taking off. There are things that we need to take off. And he's going to head into a section of things that we put on. Like in a lot of his, uh, his epistles, we did that in Colossians the take off and the put on. He's coming back to that theme here again in Ephesians. And I want to I say, what are these sins? Why are they there? And what can we do? Okay? So let's pray, and then we'll read, and we'll dive into it. Father, I thank you that you are a God who does not hide from us. Thank you that you are a God who wants us to know you. And in the relationship that you initiate, that we take joy in living in, there's also responsibility. There's both invitation and challenge 
as we live with you. And I pray this morning that we would respond to that. I pray that we would hear your invitation. And I pray that we would hear your challenge. And I pray that we would respond. Give us a spirit of humility to not push off and to not say this is just somebody else's problem, but to look at me, to look at ourselves and be able to ask, Spirit, what do you want to do in me? Would you make us open right now as we dig into your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians 4, we're going to start in verse 25. And we're going to go all the way to 32 if you have a Bible that you're reading uh, right there at your table. Ephesians 4, 25 through 32, Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. In this passage, all of the sin- sins of the tongue fall under the term that Paul uses in verse 29 when he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And I want to give you a picture of what that word corrupting means. The NIV uh, or the NASB both use the word unwholesome, ESV, I think the King James prefer corrupting or corrupt. And here's the picture. When I was growing up, I don't know, um, did anybody here grow up on a lake or spend significant time growing up on a lake? My parents or my grandparents grew up, or I grew up with my grandparents living on the east side of Lake Winnebago. Uh, If you know Lake Winnebago, you know that it's a clean lake, but it doesn't look clean, that it's alive. There's lots of green in it and the algae and it's uh, it's just alive. I grew up swimming in it. I loved it. The, kind of the beach went out forever. Um, the water didn't get deep very long, and so we could go out 100 yards and still be playing. Every once in a while, when we would show up at Grandma and Grandpa's, we'd be walking toward the beach, and all of a sudden, something would hit us, something that shouldn't have been there, and it filled our noses like, oh, what is that? Chances are, It was a big dead sheephead lying on the beach, just sitting there. It had died, it bloated, it floated to the top, and it got pushed in with the waves. And it was lying there in the sand with flies where its eyes used to be, just kind of rotting away. And it was gross to look at. It was either even grosser to take in. You guys ever experienced dead fish? I took my kids fishing a week ago uh, in Monona, and there was just a big dead carp there. The algae had already started to say, this looks like home. And, I mean, it's just decomposing. That's corrupting. That's what this word means. It means rotten. If you have kids 
and, and you have a minivan or you open up a car sometime and the door, and it just goes, Whoosh, and it's like, oh, somebody left their banana or fruit and it's cooked over, and it doesn't smell at all like baked apple pie. This is a different kind of baked. That's a corrupting kind of baked, right? That's a rotten kind of baked. How many of you have ever smelled uh, the smell of rotten potatoes? They get slimy and they get noxious. And it's like, oh, where is that coming from? I need to find it and I need to get it out. This is what Paul is saying. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let no dead fish come out of your mouths. Let no rotten fruit or rotten potatoes come out of your mouths. That's the picture that he would want us to see, that this is vile, that this is rotten. It's dead and decomposing. And he says, I want you to have nothing to do with it. And then he starts to break it down. We're going to talk about five different ones. Four of them, at least, are coming right out of here, and then one is my, uh, one is my extra credit. <laughs> The first one is slander. These first three will tie together kind of on a continuum. When he brings up slander, slander is intentionally lying about somebody else with the intent to harm, right? You can be sued over slander. If you say somebody, somebody did this or somebody intended this and you know that's not the case, but you're speaking it, they can sue you and they can take money away from you for the wrongdoing. It's a sin that our civil government recognizes. You can't do it. We do it all the time, and I suppose you could slander sort of on accident. We do it when we assign motive to people. They did this, and I know they did it because they're evil. I know they did it because they're a pile of, right? And I start to judge their heart, and I impose that on them. It happens all the time in politics, rather than having a hard conversation about a tough topic with two different sides that we could go to battle on legitimately, we start to take shots at character. And rather than having the, the real conversation, we undercut them by saying, this is the real issue, not this up here. We don't need to engage in this up here. We need to, you guys need to know how evil they are. And slander works, doesn't it? Polls change when new dirt comes out on candidates. And it, it may or may not have anything to do with the real issues at hand. But then it's not just out there either. It can happen in the church, and it can happen in families. I've, had, I've experienced this, where rather than having hard conversations with people in conflict, we go to attack their character. I've seen people beat up, beat up by slander in the church. And Paul says, it's rotten, it's corrupt, it's just like speaking fish, and I want you to have nothing of it. He goes on and he'll say gossip. Gossip is slightly better than slander, right? Gossip may or may not be true, so it's got that going for it. Slander is just flat out lies. Gossip might be true. But the question that we should ask with gossip is, is this mine to tell? Is this mine to share? Do you know she's pregnant? No, I did not. That's so exciting. Well, did she want people to know that? Because that's a sensitive deal. Like, is that your news? And sometimes it's just not. We might not even have ill intent, 
Like we might be really just celebrating with somebody, but it's not mine. And so I need to bite my tongue when I feel that juicy stuff coming out, right? Because even that, even though it feels good to me, that can still hurt. Gossip runs rampant in schools. Some of it's true, some of it's not, and it doesn't matter. It's not theirs to tell, and they're sharing something that may cause great pain. Social media has made it uh, incredibly easy to bully with gossip. And Paul, again, would say, stop the rot. You got to stop the rot. And he goes on into critical speech. So slander and then gossip, which may or may not be true. Critical speech also may or may not be true. It tends, though, to have a more, uh, more of a truth-telling component in it. Critical speech, Paul would say, it's not enough for simply something to be true or, or to, for you really to believe that it's true. Like I've heard people over, over and over just kind of have this kind of demeanor where they say, hey, I'm just speaking the truth here. Hey, you, I just, they need to hear it. I'm just speaking the truth. God would not want us to overlook that. And there's, there's, a, there's a good component to that. But when it's wrapped up in critical speech, I think it ends up being a cop-out. I think it ends up being less than helpful. It actually can be sin to just be critical in nature. And I say that because if we back up in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4.15, Paul says, we're doing this whole thing speaking the truth in love. Like, love and truth meet in the words that we say. And just being critical, just being truth-telling is not enough. Now, critical speech can take all kinds of forms. He watches too much TV, which may be true or may just be really your conviction around how much TV it should, uh, somebody should consume. But it's coming out and it's like, that's not, a, that's not a helpful thing to say. She wears too much makeup. Again, might be true, might really be your conviction around how much makeup somebody should or should not wear. Not really helpful. That one, not really a good student. They're just never, never going to be a good student. I don't see it in them. That's not a helpful thing to say. It might be true, but it's not helpful. You always should be a trigger should be a catch mark for us to say, the next thing that come out of my mouth, is it, is it, do I want to take a step back? Because you always or you never, that very easily is going to fall into the critical speech category here. Making fun of people will fit in here. I, I, there, there's so much fun to be had in making fun of others, right? You'll be driving down the street and somebody's... Uh, riding past in a ridiculous outfit. And it's so much fun to turn around to the people in the car and say like, look at that. And what does that actually do? It's actually rot. We feel good about it, but it's poisoning us. We would never want them to hear it, right? But we do it. Husbands and wives can get in this rut. 
where the way that we speak to one another, the most important person in our life, we speak to them with a tone, and it gets to be a natural default, where the tone is critical. Parents do it with kids, where our default tone is just critical. I know that I get stuck in a rut where I'm saying no, 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 far more than I'm speaking yes. And I start to notice the little annoyances or the little discrepancies in the way that they're living rather than coaching them, rather than bringing them up and teaching them about life and about God and about who they are and about why we don't do certain things, I find it far easier sometimes to just, and the critical nature comes out. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add here, um, specifically at West, some of you are in danger of critical words by nature of the way you're wired and by the nature of your job. A lot of you work at Epic, and a lot of you, your job is to find problems, right? To find problems and to eliminate problems. And that's a good job, and it's a needed job. But if you start, if you start to look through life through the lens of, it's my job to see problems, you are at risk of just simply getting bogged down by a critical nature. That solving, identifying problems is good, but the intent is to solve. The intent is to get to health. The intent is to get to something good, right? And so I don't say that at all to beat you up, but almost to say, it's good if we identify this, that you are at risk. Uh, and And it's a card that's being dealt against you because every day you have to look for the negative. I hope that you're able to take that off to some degree to say, I don't want to just live a negative life. Super useful, super useful, but not when it consumes, right? So I'm just going to, I'm going to throw that out there. It's easy to get stuck. Critical speech can make us feel better than people around us, (laughs) but we don't want to get stuck there. Paul throws out this word clamor in the list. Uh, I think the NIV uh, says brawling. And it's like fighting with your words. Uh, Somebody who is a a verbal brawler is just kind of the perpetual antagonist, always arguing. As somebody who uses Facebook always ever for the, the purpose of like bringing up controversy or bringing up an argument. And if that's you, I would just have you like check yourself. Is that really what you want to do? What are you trying to accomplish? And is it working? And is it good? Facebook can be really good. Facebook also can be like a, that is, that's, all, that's just not helpful. Somebody who is a perpetual antagonist is somebody who, um, it's hard to feel safe around, right? I don't know if you've, if you've been in the presence of somebody who's just always looking to argue, always looking to contradict, always looking to like, I want to stir up a fight here. And that we start to live on the adrenaline of like, I'm really good at that. That's a great skill, but not, again, not to be consumed by. We don't want to live life through the glasses of clamor. 
and it ends up being rot. Now, I'm going to add, this isn't in the Bible, this isn't a, a word that Paul brings up or a topic of the like, sins of the tongue that he does. I'm going to like say not authoritatively, just my opinion. I think sarcasm can fit in this area of sins of the tongue. Um, sarcasm is saying the, uh, intentionally saying the opposite of what you mean. Honey, would you do the dishes? Yes, I would love to do the dishes. There was nothing I would rather do than the dishes. Or we get in the car in the morning with my kids and it won't start. And like, awesome, the car won't start. Dad, why is that awesome? No, it's not awesome. You don't get my humor. You don't seem funny right now. Okay, okay. Sarcasm, sarcasm. If you're with people who get you, then it can be good. It can, I think there's a place where you could maybe say it's edifying, Right? or it builds community. Sarcasm very often, very often though, goes misunderstood. And that can make me, uh, who has a sarcastic past, feel good. If I say something sarcastic and somebody doesn't catch it, I feel good about how smart I am and how gullible they are. Like, gullible's not in the dictionary. Really? I've done that to people, and then I felt good about myself. And then looking back saying, no, you're just a jerk. You felt good about being a jerk. Way to go, man. Way to go. Um, which is also sarcasm, right? So there's a loop that happens. Sarcasm, the trick with it is that it makes you feel better and it makes other people feel lower when they don't get it. If you're all on the same level playing field, I don't, I'm not sure that it applies there. But be careful about what your words are actually doing. Often there's an edge and it's at somebody's expense. So Paul has just kind of rifled through. These are sins, sins of the tongue. These are uh, the rot, the dead fish that are coming out of our mouth and we want to take that off. We wanna, before we just say, what do we do with it? I think it's good if we would say, well, wait, why? Why is this even here? Why, what is going on in me that this is an issue? Paul says there are three causes, and then I want to elaborate and, and go even more into it. Paul says bitterness, wrath, and anger. I think you can tie those to sins of the tongue. So bitterness is like this long-standing resentment. It's being hurt by somebody and then holding on to that hurt. And then over time, refusing to reconcile. And as the days go by, as the months go by, as the years go by, that kind of cooks and it festers. And so you start to look through life uh, through the poison of bitterness. It poisons you. When you're not able to forgive somebody, when you're not able to reconcile, bitterness will affect your words. It can't not. Bitterness will eke out. And sometimes it gets real ugly. So I'd say... If you're somebody who's carrying bitterness and you're noticing it like come out in your words, your words might actually be part of the diagnosis or part of the, um, the observation to get to the diagnosis to say, this is the real issue. This bitterness, we've got to deal with this. And when you make this part healthy, I think the words can follow. Paul talks about wrath, which is outbreaks of passion. It's like, Throwing 
fire into a pile of straw. Everything seems normal. Or if, you're, if you love grilling with a charcoal grill, you know, you'd start it and it gets lit and then it kind of fades away and you pour that beautiful lighter fluid on it and you take a match and you're like, everybody stand back and watch a thing of beauty. Right? And the whole grill goes up and that's a good deal, but that's kind of like what wrath is like. Everything seems kind of cool and then all of a sudden, boom, and it just comes out. Wrath is volatile. It's passion. And it's, it's coming from a place where things are, uh, I, f- I feel like wrath comes from a place where you have pushed things down, but every once in a while, they break through your barrier. They break through the filter, and they're able to say, now I got my chance, and I'm just going to snap. Anger. Paul says anger. And he doesn't mean just like once in a while getting angry at something. What he's talking about is habitual anger, anger as a way of life, where you're just, you know, you're just an angry person. People have joked around saying um, men have two emotions, happy and angry. Like, and you can see that sometimes in people where you'll catch them on a good day maybe, or, you'll, or they're just angry. They're just, they just walk around with a scowl. Um, and that as a way of affecting our words. It'll come out. And when we talk about anger, I think it's good to sidestep just a little bit to say there is, a such, there is such a thing as righteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Paul, in this passage, in Ephesians 4, says, be angry, be angry, and do not sin. He puts those two together. A good number of commentators use this passage as a springboard to talk about uh, this righteous anger, but I don't think that this is Paul's main point here. He's not just talking about righteous anger. There, there are things that should make you angry. I think there are things that make God angry. When injustice runs free, God is mad. God is angry. Not like, not like our normal anger, because God doesn't sin in it. And that's where Paul says, like, be angry about sin. Be angry about injustice. But don't become sin in dealing with it. You don't combat sin with sin. You combat sin with righteousness. Be angry and don't sin. Now, I I think we could make a whole list of reasons behind why like, we're susceptible to these sins of the tongue. Like, Riley preached last week about heritage. What heritage has been given to us? What was the legacy that our, uh, our parents and our grandparents left for us? That's the heritage we receive. Some of us haven't received a good uh, natural heritage. Some of us have received a heritage of sins of the tongue, Like, you grew up in a home where mom and dad were always angry. You grew up in a home where people were spewing sarcasm and and just uh, death and rot. And that's not to heap condemnation on them. There's stuff going on. But what was passed on to you was not a model of health, but was a model that you pick up and say, well, this is just how things go. And you... You grow up learning that. Maybe we're just simply thoughtless. Like the forest fire, I think a lot of forest fires are started by people who aren't intending to start a forest fire. 
They just, they're not careful. They're not thoughtless. And so we're, maybe we're just, we're just not taking that extra step to be careful with what we say. Maybe we really love laughing. Maybe humor is a really important value to us, which I think is a good value. I don't think God wants us to take ourselves too seriously. But I think humor, if I laugh at a joke or if a joke is laugh-worthy, isn't the litmus test of whether it should be told, right? Like I laugh at a lot of things that later on I'm like, I should not have laughed at that. That is not, that's not a good thing to be laughing about. And humor, we have such a high value for it that it can lead us down a road. I, I would call humor neutral. Humor is like principle neutral. It can be good or it can be bad. And we have to read, um, we have to read who we are into it. Maybe, maybe our sins of the tongue come from our own feelings of inadequacy. And I want to use my words in ways that I feel like build me up, and in so doing, I'm going to push others down. And it's coming from a place where I, because I feel inadequate, because I feel like I don't measure up, and because I feel like I want other people to say that I measure up, or other people to think more highly of me. And so the words that I choose are meant, like in politics, to just cast doubt or cast dirt on other people and put them down. And by doing that, I win. Maybe you're coming from your own place of condemnation. Maybe uh, all your life you've had lies spoken into your identity and you live out of that. This is just who I am. I'm really not worth much. I, I have all kinds of doubt. I live with all kinds of shame. And from that place, if you're living from a place of condemnation, if you're living from a place of shame, that's going to come out ugly. That's just going to come out ugly. The hurt that you feel inside is going to come out onto others. Hurt people. Hurt people. Right? Whatever the cause is, Ephesians 4.29, it stands. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. No slander, no gossip, no critical speech, none of it. And so we, we aim to take it off. And what do we put on? Before we get to a place where we say, what do we put on? We want to make sure that this isn't just a self-help. This isn't just a uh, today's healthy psychology, self-help kind of deal. This comes from a place where God is breathing into it. If we go back to Matthew 12, and we back up just a little bit to verse 33. He's talking to the Pharisees and the fruit that they're producing in their life. And he says, Jesus says in verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And then this key statement here, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. 
Jesus says the sins of the tongue come from a dark place within. And instead of just trying to attack them for what they are, Jesus says, I want you to go to the root. I want you to, I want you to have the tree changed. And so I'll tell you, if you're coming from a place of condemnation, or if you're coming from a place of shame, or if you recognize that these things are in you, one of the most beautiful things that God gives us is the Holy Spirit uh, bringing guilt. Repentance is not a dirty word. Repentance is a gift. When God shows us our sin, he's not doing it because he's just angry and he wants to act punitively with us. He wants to squish us. When God shows us our sin, it's a gift because he wants to bring us to some place of healing. He wants to bring us to some place where that's not true anymore. Jesus wants to change the very tree that we are. And by doing that, by doing that, we change the fruit. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so I say, if you're in here this morning, and this is true for you, one of your prayers needs to start being, Jesus, what is the abundance in my heart? What is the abundance in my heart? Is my heart full of what he had called evil treasure? Or is it full of good treasure? It's abundant, but that doesn't mean it's life-giving. Jesus, I would love you to fill my heart with life. And that doesn't just mean walking across the line and accepting Jesus for the first time. But I want you to keep filling me and keep filling me with life. I need abundance. And I think that's a prayer that he delights in answering, really. Be reminded of who God is. Be reminded of how he loves. And be reminded of how he calls. And let abundance come from that. So we say, Jesus can change us. What do we put on? Paul gets prescriptive here a little bit. where He says in Ephesians 4, 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one body. Speak the truth in love. So the two questions that we can ask here is, is it true and is it loving? And it, if it fails either one of those tests, it's not worth saying, right? Now, that doesn't mean, is it true and is it nice? Is it true and is it friendly? Is it true and is it um, innocuous? That means the purpose behind love is to build up. Sometimes you say hard things with the purpose of building somebody up. And if your purpose isn't to do that, then I don't think it counts as loving. So is it true? And is it loving? And then Paul later on in Ephesians 4.29, when he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So is it true? And is it loving? And we'd add three more to the test right here. Does it build up? That's, that helps us answer the is it, uh, is it loving. Paul says, does it fit the occasion? Because there's a lot of true and loving things that you can say at random times that don't fit, right? 
Like people are having a conversation about one thing and you come in with a true and loving building up thing, but it just doesn't fit where you're at right now in the conversation. And you say, this is not the timing for that. There's another time that would be better suited for this. Is it true? Is it loving? Does it build up? Does it fit the occasion? And does it give grace to those who hear? I love that one. I absolutely love. Does what I'm saying give grace? Give grace. And again, that's, just, that's not all like cotton candy and fluff. But it does it give grace. The greatest act of grace was Jesus come, coming and saying, you are broken. You are sinful. And that's a hard word. And I will take your guilt. I will take your shame. I will take your condemnation. And I will nail it to the cross. Grace is not the absence of hard things. Grace is dealing with hard things and growing through it. And Jesus said, I will take that for you. I won't hide from the pain. We're going to press in so that I can get cut out, so that it can get changed, so that you can be changed. The stakes are raised. We live in a culture where this is just flying around. And we have an opportunity to be powerful forces for good and for God. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as in Christ God forgave you. So I'll wrap up, but I want to give you, uh, if you're looking for clear, okay, but what do I do? Those questions are helpful, but what do I do? I'm going to tell you what to do. And if you're a person who resists being told what to do, then uh, shut your ears for a little bit, um, and I'll, I'll be okay with that. If you feel like God is poking you in the chest this morning, the first thing that you should do is recognize your sin. Name it. Identify it. Don't run from it. Whether you've been following Christ for years, or if this, if this is a day where you'd say, man, I feel like I'm open to Jesus more than I ever have been. I've never really fully jumped in, but I want to. Uh, Seeing your sin is a vital part of that. Seeing your sin is a vital part of it. When you take your sin to God, when you repent of it, when you turn, when you say, I want to stop living my way, I want to start living your way, his forgiveness covers. His forgiveness washes over. And when you identify your sin, I also want you to be able to take that to God and let forgiveness happen. The second would be, if there are people that you have hurt with your tongue, it's time to be forgiven by God, but then also go to them and say, hey, look, I think I've, I think I've hurt you. I, I have this thing growing inside of me where I feel like I've hurt you with my words. And the, the humbling question to ask then is, is that true? If it's not too great, then I was just pretending and I'll go on and forget this ever happened, right? If it's true, we need to deal with it. I need to adjust. What are some of the patterns that have, that have been going on and how can we make changes so that I'm no longer hurting you? And when you get to a place to be able to say, I don't want to just change, I need your forgiveness. I need you to forgive me. And you actually give that other person a gift so that they don't end up in bitterness, right? And just holding on to that. 
but it puts you at their mercy, which is a good place to be in. Seek God's forgiveness. Seek others' forgiveness. The third I would say is just be, just be quiet. Have a season of silence where you ha- if you have noticed that your words are just hostile or your words are just volatile, they're burning and they're rotting, then just pause. Just be quiet and start to listen to what others are saying. Start to pay attention to what you would say if you let yourself say it, but say, no, right now I'm not. And it doesn't mean giving everybody the silent treatment, right, and being a snot about that, but saying, I'm not going to post because I don't trust myself right now. I'm not going to say this in response because my, my recent history has been my response has not been healthy. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put another filter in there. Have a season of silence. I would say uh, memorize Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Meditate on it. Memorize it. Get it into you. And it's not just as a to-do or a should-do kind of thing. It's because when we eat the Word, when it becomes part of us, God brings it back to mind in timely ways so that when I'm, when I'm susceptible to speaking rot, Ephesians 4.29 comes right back as a gift to say, oh, wait, I don't have to live that way anymore. I can live, I can live a much better way. If your sin has a common target, that is, if you feel like somebody has been worthy of your harsh uh, words or you have been slandering them or gossiping them, what I want you to do is I want you to start praying for them. Because you should seek their forgiveness, but even more than that, I want you to start praying for them. And not like the country song, uh, I don't really like country, but I love this song, where the guy's like, I pray for you. Like, I pray a piano falls down on you. Um, I pray all the time for you. It's not that kind of prayer. It's how would they want me to pray for them? What's going on in their life that if I prayed for them, it would be extending grace. It would be loving and it would be true. How could I pray for them? I've had that happen in my own life where I have been antagonistic to other people and I've felt like they've been worthy of that. And when I started seeing them as people in a family going through things and I started to pray for them around that, I felt for them not in a condescending, patronizing way, but as as fellow humans. I want you to feel for the person who's on the other end of your words. Make efforts to actually get to know those people. You might ask them how you could pray for them. It's easy to hate people from a distance. It's easy to gossip from a distance or to slander from a distance or speak uh, critically. It's easy to vilify when they're not right there with you. Get with them and pray for them. And then filter everything through Ephesians 4.29. Does it build up or is it tearing down? Does it fit the occasion? Does it give grace to the hearers? Otherwise, just leave it unsaid. Matthew 5.9 will end here. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. And our words have that ability. Our words can either burn down or they can build up. 
they can divide or they can bring back and reconcile. There's great, great power in our words. So let's use them well. We're going to move into a time of worship. Say, God, our God is a God who uses words. The words that come out of him come from a place of wholeness, come from a place of health, come from a place of life. And the words that God uses to us speak life into us. And even in the hard times when God is identifying for us things in us that are rot, he's, God is doing that as a gift. We have a God who gives gifts instead of uh, poison drinks, right? We're going to worship. We're going to celebrate communion, remembering what Jesus did in speaking into our lives, in uh, taking our condemnation and nailing it to the cross in the great exchange that happened there. I want you to take it and I want you to think about what does God say about me? What words does God have for me? And I want you to let this time be a time of worship, but also a time of receiving where you would hear from him about how he loves you, about how he invites you, and how he challenges you from that. Let's pray, and we'll worship. Father, thank you, thank you for your character. God, we thank you that you are, uh, you are not a God who is corrupt. You are not a God who is rotten, but you are a God who is life. And out of your life, you give life. Out of your abundance, you offer abundance. And I pray, I pray that you would open our eyes to this sin. Not so that we can just feel bad and wallow in it, but so that we could identify it. So that we could see, we could see the danger in it. And we could be healed. Would you create in us a deeper desire for speaking grace. We love you and we worship you and we're thankful for you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.